Dotnet Rocks episode 629 with guest Joel Semeniuk. Recorded live Monday, January 17th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome to .NET Rocks where it's cold and snowy in New London, Connecticut, in nice New England town. This is Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell's out there in Vancouver. Is it snowing in Vancouver? Nope. Raining as usual, my friend. Yeah, it always rains there. But the good Seattle. news is you don't have to shovel rain. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. You got to walk around in it, though. And and Joel Semeniak is out there from Winnipeg, Manitoba. You got snow there, Joel? Yes, there's a ton of snow. We had an entire weekend full of snow, and it is bloody cold out here right now. Man. Well, Joel, I want you to sit back and, and hang out for a second while we uh, while we read an email and do a little segment that we call Better Know a Framework. Sounds great. Awesome. What do you got? So, you know, I'm, I'm all for, I, I really get the feeling that there's a bunch of people who are just getting into .NET now and they missed the, you know, the hype the first time around. So it's more difficult for them to just sort of chew on the fundamentals. You know, because we were all talking about fundamentals in the early 2000s, in the early aughts. And now um, some of these things are just, we, we take them for granted. So I want to talk about the system.messaging namespace. Oh, okay. This is the home of Message Queue. Yes. Formerly known as MSMQ, Microsoft Message Queue. So you, I'm not going to tell you why you need Message Queue. If you need any kind of, you do any kind of asynchronous transactions, and you want to queue up uh, transactions as they come in, that's what it's for. It's for simply for scalability. Richard, you've done a lot of MSMQ programming in the past. For better or worse, because I like my messages unidirectional. Yeah. And, you know, if you know the concept of a queue from computer science class, the first thing in is the first thing out, you'll know what a queue is. So there's a message object. There's a message class, rather. There's... Uh, a receive method on there and also receive by ID and receive by correlation ID for reading messages from a queue. There's a send uh, method. There's a peak method, which is like receive, but you can peak and not remove it. Yeah, not actually pop it from the queue. Just take yeah. a look. What's going on in there? What is that? <laughs> then, of course, you can do all this asynchronously, begin peak and end peak. And then uh, you have, uh, the in the message queue class, you have get private queues by machine, which enables retrieval of the private queues on a computer. So that's kind of neat. Get public queues by category, by label, by machine, all that kind of stuff. So it's all there. And you get formatters, binary formatters, XML formatter, and ActiveX message formatter, which is compatible with the MSMQ COM control. Mm -hmm. So it's all there. Message queuing, transactional yeah. queuing. Just part of the framework these days. Yeah, it's just a, a fundamental piece of plumbing. Know it, love it, learn it. Know it, love it, learn it. Stealing your lines, System my dot messaging. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, I got a good one for you. You'll like this. Gentlemen, and hey, good answer, Robert. I like it. Yeah. Love the show with Gus Iza. Yeah. Since I've been developing with the .NET micro framework for a while now. 
when you asked whether a web server can be created inside a .mf device, I nearly jumped out of my seat. Luckily, the seatbelt held me down. <laughs> Since I created a web server on the very device Gus was talking about, the embedded master. It was ridiculously easy. In fact, when a browser hits up the device, the web server serves out a Silverlight 4 app, which then initiates a persistent socket connection to the device for feeding real-time data to the browser. Speak my language. The possibilities are truly endless with the combination of managed languages in both device and browser. Imagine having a real-time feed out of your dishwasher. Oh, yeah. Kind of geeky. I'm all over that. (laughs) I am currently, as a hobby, developing a remote-controlled robot with my kids using the Fez mini robot that you mentioned on the show. I bought a Wi-Fi card off of sparkfun.com to make it network aware and hoping to be able to control the robot from my cell phone or anything else that has a browser. As to why I picked .NET Micro Framework device over other solutions, it's easy. Yeah. Below is the code to blink the LED in .NET Micro Framework and compare that with C in Micro Linux. And the decision is pretty easy to make. And I'm not going to read the code out, but needless to say... Well, you know, just tell them how many lines the yeah, Micro Linux one. Including on comments and on and on and on. the .NET Micro Framework code, it was six lines of code. And there are more than six lines of headers in the C <laughs> with Micro Linux. It's, it's about 50 lines of code. Yeah. So th- do we mention that it's easy? Yeah. It's very, very easy. And so Robert wraps it up with, this is the point. All right. When both the client and the server speak .NET, life is good. Yeah. Robert, you touched our hearts, man. We love this stuff, too. We've got parts on order. We're going That's nuts. Right. They're sending and them to us. We're going to... Uh, I'm I'm going to go nuts with my house. I just bought a house. So my, congratulations, yeah. my friend. So I'm I'm going to go nuts with that. And if anybody's got any uh, any suggestions as to how I can geekify my house even more than the stuff that you've heard on .NET Rocks, please let me know. And uh, Robert's getting a mug. We're going to ship it out to him right away. It says .NET Rocks on the side like all good mugs should. That's right. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .NET Rocks at franklins.net. And if all you say in your email is, please send me a mug, you won't get one. <laughs> Just saying. The answer is no. No. Be creative. Come on. Yes. Flame us, us a story. if you need to. A, a nice story, a little bit about yourself, some technology you're working on, anything cool. And certainly... We read all of our email. We can't respond to it all, but right. we read it all. And I use it, I mine it for ideas for shows. So if you got somebody you want to see or a topic you want to hear about, .NET rocks at franklins.net and we'll get to it for you. Yeah. And with that, let's introduce our old friend, Joel Semeniuk. Well, I didn't mean to call you old, but you are an old friend. Joel, Joel Semeniuk is a founder of Imaginet Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. Currently, Joel is also serving as an executive VP at Telerik in charge of the team productivity division. He's also a Microsoft regional director and MVP Microsoft ALM and has a degree in computer science. With over 18 years of experience, Joel specializes in helping organizations around the world realize their potential through maturing their software development and information technology practices. Joel is passionate about application lifecycle management tooling techniques and mindsets and regularly speaks at conferences around the world on a wide range of ALM topics. Joel is also the co-author of Managing Projects with Microsoft Visual Studio Team System, published by Microsoft Press, as well as dozens of other articles for popular trade magazines. Welcome back, friend. Hey, thanks a lot. How are you guys doing? Pretty good, eh? How's it going, eh? So, sorry. 
I'm just oh, you know sure what I didn't there. tell you? Now, I mean, we, we've already recognized that Joel's the coldest guy in the room. Yeah. Tomorrow, we're recording this on Monday. It's going to be published on Wednesday. So Tuesday, so it's either tomorrow or yesterday, depending on you know how that works out. I fly to Whitehorse for the Boost Conference. Now, for those who don't know where Whitehorse is, Whitehorse it's is freaking in, north. Yeah, it's in the Yukon. It's almost right on 60 degrees north. So, and uh, the host there just sent me an email warning me that last week it hit negative 47 Celsius. And their highs have been about negative 25 Celsius. So, as he said, bring a jacket. Yeah, or five. Well, you know, that's not too far away from Winnipeg, I might add. Right now, <laughs> with the wind, it is minus 35. Oh, man, Jeez. dude. Ouch. That's as cold. For now, for our United States people, how how much how cold is that? Well, negative forty Celsius is the same as negative forty Fahrenheit. Ooh, it happens to line up, so that's where they meet. That the ranges get different. So from it's there. pretty damn freaking cold. Well, a- in fact, I am on the weathernetwork.com right now, and I'm taking a look at the White Horse weather. It is colder in Winnipeg right now than it is in White Horse right oh, now. Man. <laughs> Oh, my friend, why do you live there? It's cold. You know what? Great people. <laughs> great food. Okay. Big and mosquitoes. Yeah, mosquitoes. Love them. Love them. The Some people like sled dogs. I like big-ass mosquitoes. The mosquitoes play hockey up there. They do. <laughs> the mosquito is a state bird. <laughs> they play hockey with your body. Yeah. Right. So, so we, what are you doing these days? We don't have days? beef. We have mosquitoes. So what are you doing these days, Joel? You know what? Probably too much. <laughs> I am involved in so many things. It's just it will make your head spin. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, as as you may or may not know, I, you know, as um, working with Teller these days, working on the new product um, um, team productivity division has been um, just a great challenge, and just been has been really, really, really busy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we've been still doing so much work in the ALM community uh, with Team Foundation Server uh, all around North America and the world. Um, just recently, this past year, Imagine it acquired Notion Solutions in the U.S., you know, making us, uh, you know, one of the bigger uh, dedicated Microsoft ALM um, practitioners, coaches, uh, experts in the world. And uh, couple that with some of the product work that we're doing, man, my life is leave, living and breathing uh, agile, lean, and, and ALM in general. And, uh, you know, Telerik has uh, snatched up a lot of uh, guests uh, of .NET Rocks, a lot of regulars that people would know. Stephen Forte works for Telerik now. And uh, how's how's that going? And uh, did they buy Imaginet, or are you still working for Imaginet and working for them as well? I like two paychecks. So, okay. yeah, no, I'm working for both. Actually, the, the reality is, is I'm still an owner of Imaginet, but I don't do anything operational uh, on that front. I work full-time for, for Telerik building out the, the brand-new product division. So it's, oh. been a, it's been a really interesting transition for me going from trainer, uh, consultant, to product guy. Um, but it's also been a real challenge as well to make sure that I have my hands into the day-to-day real world. So that's why... You know, uh, I, I spend a lot of time with the guys that are out in the field, the Notion and the Imaginate consultants, really kind of feeling the customer's pain and understanding overall trends that they're seeing over the past uh, number of months that I've been yeah. with, uh, with Telerik. So it's really important that we keep, you know, really deep in, into the ALM world so we can, you know, build product and services that reflect that. That's cool. That's cool. So, and, and for Imaginate, you're sort of just the, the vision guy now? 
Yeah, so I'm I'm still on the board of directors. I don't have a, a specific role. I guess you can call me emerging markets. I kind of look into the future a little bit and say, hey, you know, we should be doing this, um, and then kind of uh, hoping that everyone else understands what I mean. And well, I run away and and do other things. But imagine it's been growing like crazy. It's a you know, it, interestingly enough, we we hired like crazy through the recession and grew thirty uh, percent. So just to kind of give you an indication of the, the business strategy that, that the organization executes against. So we, we didn't really feel any effects of, of the latest recession. And yeah. uh, so things are going really, really strong. So TFS, what sort of customers are you seeing that are using it? You know what? It's, it's, it's getting more and more diversified. Yeah. We have a, a whole bunch of different spectrum of customers. Uh, usually on the, when I, when, I look at Notion and look at the customers they're working with. They're working with the big guys. They're working with really large organizations. Um, I can't really name their names, but they might produce soft drinks and they might produce computer chips, perhaps. <laughs> um, and and they're all using TFS. Um, and we're also getting some of the smaller shops that are using TFS. So the diversity that we're seeing out there is, is really kind of growing uh, quite exponentially. I mean, 2010 was a big, really, you know, big year for TFS, and it really kind of started the spark of, of going, okay, I get it. This is a real product. Now I have to pay attention to this. Um, the ecosystem has been alive, and the product has been uh, responding to customer need quite well. Yeah. So uh, what kinds of projects have you been seeing out there, and have they been uh, differing? in scope or size or scale? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a couple that stand out. Uh, I mentioned to you that there was um, a couple of, uh, some of the big ones that are out there. Um, and let's say one of the chip manufacturers out there was actually looking at using TFS to manage all of their source code across all of their platforms. So we're talking Windows, Mac, uh, Unix, all using uh, Team Explorer everywhere. Wow. So yeah, I mean, so the entire organization said, you know what? This is a, a pretty sound source control environment. Uh, we don't want to have diversity across different platforms anymore. Uh, anymore for source control, uh, can we use TFS for this? The answer is yes. Uh, Tim Explorer everywhere does that, and so we're getting a lot of those types of implementations, especially for the larger groups. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of interesting uh, build deploy scenarios. So. From a usability perspective, customers are using primarily uh, TFS for a uh, version control system, but they're also using it as an automated build management system. And we've got some um, pretty unique customers that are, have automated builds that produce, uh, that build .NET, C++ 6, VB6, uh, Visual Fortran, Install Shield, all inside of a single build. What? Visual yeah. Fortran? Amen, brother. Whoa. Now you're just scaring me. But is I guess that, that just whoa. kind of gives you an idea of how flexible the, the underlying platform is, and people are using it not only just for their, their greenfield, you know, .NET uh, applications, they're also using it for some of their old code as well, um, and leveraging the automated build capabilities of it to really make a difference in, you know, getting those builds out the door every single day, um, you know, and, and more importantly, running tests against those. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products 
supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, the same time that TFS has been out, Git seems to have really gotten a lot of traction. It's, you it's know, a very- there's... A- the Git is a wonderful platform, and I, and I love it because it influences everybody else around it. And we, you know, we can go back and, you know, our, I'm sure all of our careers and kind of identify some of those really fundamental tipping point type of um, products that made everybody else think differently. Git is one of those. Um, and you're seeing a lot of early adopters, a lot of passionate people adopting Git and really kind of evangelizing about why this is a better type of source control system. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm not going to speak for the product team, but I can guarantee you that eventually, um, the goodness that Git brings to the table uh, will work its way into more mainstream um, source control systems um, as well. So, you thinking that at some point, Studio should be able to work with Git cleanly? It should be able to work with Git, but I also think it might take some design patterns from Git. I mean, Git's a a distributed version control system. Um, It has a lot of flexibility, lots of ability to customize and extend, and it really kind of is a recognition of a very specific need that organizations are screaming for. So either... um, Visual Studio will have a better ability to work with Git, or we're going to see Gitness, uh, you know, uh, themes of Git applied to what we're seeing in the products today. Nice. You know, well, the, the other side of this is GitHub, which is where the the whole idea of open source repositories that you, mm-hmm. you just put your code up there. Well, you know what, and that's that's another big trend that I'm seeing. So you know, cloud. Yeah, I, I predicted on my blog uh, last year that that cloud would start taking steam, and I didn't see it. You know, there was a few customers that were dabbling in it. I uh, didn't see, you know, a huge amount of customers move towards this this direction. But now I'm even seeing the small to medium-sized businesses going, you know what, we don't want to actually have the liability of maintaining our own source code. Uh, we would love to just turn a switch and be able to, you know, check in our stuff, check it out, have things built in the cloud. Um, you know, TFS has a number of partners that are out there that are offering um, cloud services uh, for TFS. And yeah, there recently, are hosted um, TFS services. I, pardon me? There are hosted TFS services. Yeah, right. but Microsoft has also demonstrated porting um, TFS to Azure. I just didn't, I just didn't, I never thought that, Companies, you know, especially Fortune 500 companies, would go for it just because it is offsite and it is sort of critical data. I mean, not just critical in terms of losing it, but in terms of being compromised. Your source code is, you know, it contains all sorts of passwords and secrets. Hopefully, uh, or you know, yeah. Usually, well, I think it's I think it's um, quite a variety of the ecosystems that are out there. I mean, it's like hosted email. I kind of put it in the same mindset as. Yeah. You know, email is mission critical to almost every organization I know, but right. there's a growing number of people who 
don't, just don't want to deal with the email. Well, in their and own also repos- the fact that it's mined, you know? I mean, you don't think Gmail mines email, your email? Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, you have that sort of lack of privacy when you're using public tools. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, GitHub is like that. I don't know anything about it, but... But I, I, I just, you know, that corporations are paranoid when it comes to that. Well, well GitHub and, is and an open source legislation that, so. are, you know, drive that as well. I mean, I've worked with some healthcare providers that are really, you know, want to move to the cloud, but are concerned that, you know, their data can't cross Canadian boundaries. And Richard, you um, just brought up a, a good point. I didn't mean to say GitHub. GitHub is, is a tool. It's not a service. We're talking about, um, you know, source control services that are in the cloud. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, essentially, I think that's, I think that's going to be a growing trend. I mean, people, um, and again, this might not be for Fortune 500 companies yet. I mean, most of them have infrastructure already that's ready to take on new services, and they have methods and processes and data centers that are already built out, and there's a heavy amount of investment in there for that already. What I'm seeing is uh, small to medium-sized companies either starting off in that boat or moving there. You know, I'm working right. with a very innovative company out of Calgary right now, who um, has been using um, successfully, I guess almost kind of, uh, VSS for the last you know, number of years, and, and, and finding that it's you know, flaky and not, not capable for the needs. Yeah, visual source safe. And the biggest question is, is so where, where do I migrate this stuff to, and right. you know, can I stick this in the cloud? Can, you know, I don't want to worry about my building burning down because we don't have the data center and you know, secondary support sites ready to manage all of my data. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, my ability to trust my own infrastructure is way less than worrying about who's looking at my code. Yeah, I guess that's the interesting point is if you don't already own a data center, there's these days, there's very few compelling reasons to own one. Everything you need is out there now. You can, you know, pay for it by the byte and by the CPU cycle. Absolutely. I was just poking around at some of the folks that are hosting or providing hosted TFS, and it's around a hundred dollars per, per per developer per month. It's, I, I mean, yeah, that is I mean, cheap. You think about the infrastructure necessary to run TFS, like that's all. It's very cheap. Right, and and especially if I want to scale that out. Um, so you know, TFS is really it, it can scale quite quite dramatically. Uh, and one of the ways that you can get additional scale is by uh, separating your boxes. So you separate your app tier from your data tier. Yeah. You might want to separate, you know, obviously, your SharePoint services on, on separate computers, and of course, your analytics computers on other services. So now when we're scaling to that point, we've you know, quadrupled the number of either virtual servers we have or physical servers that we have to kind of maintain this level of scale, whereas this is all abstract and kind of transparent to the people who are doing this um, for services in the cloud which mm-hmm. already might be set up to build to scale in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty compelling. Yeah, it is compelling. And just, yeah, <laughs> we, we used to just keep our source code on a hard drive or a floppy disk, you know, way back when. You darn whippersnappers, get off my right. lawn. <laughs> you know what? There's a lot of companies that are still using Dropbox. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about Dropbox, I, I know I read this somewhere recently, was it's one of the few products that just does what you actually asked. And I want to put my file somewhere where my other machines can pick it up or my friends can pick it up, and that's it. Hmm. No other decoration, no social yeah. media attached to it, none of that stuff. Just put it, got it, good, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what life would be like without Dropbox myself. 
I'm like you guys, you probably have, you know, half a dozen or in, in case of, you know, probably a dozen computers that you, that you go between and you need access to this data. Um, and Dropbox, like you said, it just works. You plug it in and bam, you don't have to question stuff. You just know what's there. Okay. I mean, granted, there's a lot of stuff that it could have like transactional support, like check-in, check-out, or the ability to have more permissions on folders. But essentially, you know, I haven't needed that, but it, it just works. It's there when I need it. Now, do any of these um, hosted TFS solutions use uh, added sec- encryption or security? You know what? That's a good point. I, I, I have um, not had that level of experience with a lot of them. Um, you know, that would be something, a criteria that if I was a consumer, I'd be looking for. Uh, first of all, making sure that my connections were encrypted so no, no one's going to be sniffing my, my data as it's going back and forth. Yeah. But second of all, making sure that the storage itself is, is secure. Um, you know, and Team Pulse has the infrastructure, sorry, not Team Pulse, the Team Foundation server uh, has the ability to provide that because it allows you to have different collections mm. for uh, different projects. And each different collection is literally its own database. Mm. So from a physical segmentation perspective, you know, there's no reason to actually have, uh, you know, uh, one company's um, projects on the same database uh, as another uh, company's um, projects. Mm. You can have physical segmentation as well as uh, specific security around that. And so lots of protection. And I imagine, I mean, you've been in TFS so long, you were around long before it was hosted. You've got your infrastructure in place. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? We've worked with so many companies that have adopted it early, and they have invested in the infrastructure. So, mm. you know, it's, uh, it is refreshing to see customers move in that direction. Uh, and it's interesting how um, our involvement doesn't necessarily go away because we're still kind of helping them think about how to structure their source control, how to capture the requirements and the processes that kind of exist within it. I mean, there's always a couple of sides to the equation is, you know, setting it up and get it running and making it scale. But then how do you use this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know what? We've still seen some adoption blockers for primarily, I mean, remember what TFS does. It does everything. It makes coffee. It, mm-hmm. you know, it wakes, you, it wakes your developers up in the morning, you know, all that good stuff. But people are mostly using it for source control and automated builds. Mm-hmm. Um, And until recently, um, they haven't really been using, you know, I would say the majority of the customers, the bigger customers, haven't really been using it to record stuff, like their bugs and tasks and requirements and stuff. But as of recently, a lot of the analytics have improved with the tool, giving people access to um, data, this raw form of data in Excel way more easily. So they can pop up in Excel and see all these magical numbers. Well, all of a sudden, people are going, well, wait a second. There's nothing in that graph. Well, why isn't there anything in that graph? Well, because you're not tracking it. Oh, we need to track that. Mm. And so that is driving a lot of the behavior for people adopting um, incrementally some of the tracking features of, of Team Foundation Server as well. So, yeah, I, I feel like there's so many different pieces in here. In some ways, it's intimidating. A lot of folks is like, hey, my process is fine. I just want a place to put my source code. And you know what? It is intimidating. I've had to specialize quite a bit over the years, you know. So as as an ALM MVP, I still participate in all the great discussions that we have with Microsoft, uh, but it goes down to some rat holes and deep inside of the bowels of some feature of of TFS that I just have decided that I'm not going to become an expert on because right. the surface area of the product, you know, gives me so much more opportunities to focus on other things. Um, yeah. 
you know, one of the there's still some some areas of the product in 2010 that that you know don't scale well to to usability. I mean, really, it doesn't provide a good way of capturing requirements. And it's not just about it's not just about having a place to put your your data that's going to survive your office burning down, mm. but also you know how well does it function with the internet is besieged for one reason or another. Yeah, oh, good point. You know, yeah. I, he, there's lots of ways for you to lose productivity. If I can't check files out, it doesn't matter whether the server's down or just slow. I need to be able to check files out. Right. But but moving to the cloud also opens up a few um, complications as well. So here's here's an example. So just because I can store my source code in the server, uh, on, in the cloud, I should say, doesn't mean I want to do my daily builds in the cloud. I might right. want to actually have that on my servers right next to me. Because it, you know, produces drops that I want to test right away and have a lot more control over that build server and the results of those builds. So we have to think about how that build server locally communicates with the services in the cloud. Most of the online service providers allow this to happen because, uh, ex- you know, you can expose TFS through HTTP and HTTPS, of course, and different ports. But you have to think about those things. Uh, number two... There's other applications and tools that integrate with TFS um, that rely upon uh, certain types of connections or for you to establish connections with it. So, for example, the Work Item Manager, which we built from Teller, can we just give away as an alternative UI built for kind of PMs and business analysts to use TFS without having to go into Visual Studio. It runs like a desktop application. Mm. Um, It relies upon a connection to TFS, so we have to think about how, you know, how we're communicating with TFS if it now exists in the cloud. Um, and the same thing with, you know, with other tools and tool vendors as well that integrate or provide this ecosystem of value around TFS because that's something that we have to consider as well. That TFS itself is a, is a pretty robust platform, but what's really robust is the ecosystem um, yeah. and what you can find around the product. Yeah, and this is sort of leads into now you start playing with development methodologies, like how, because I find that mostly folks find tools are impediments to the methodology they want to use. <laughs> yeah, right. right, and we also find that adopting methodologies without good tools is also an impediment. So mm-hmm. it also it kind of chases its tail ways. there a little bit. Yeah. So we've had teams that really want to do Scrum. And don't get me wrong. You can do Scrum without tools. We've done this with whiteboards and sticky notes and, and build dolls and everything worked fine. Tough to scale that to your Egyptian testing team uh, and, you know, um, document writers that, don't, that live offshore and, you know, things getting more complicated. That's where tools start to come into play. Um, but it's still surprising. You know, you know Forrester produced some stats. Um, this past year, you know, they do every year. They gather some stats about the kind of the health of the the ALM community, and and Scrum by far is the most adopted agile methodology. But interestingly enough, the usage of agile is growing up considerably. It's about thirty five percent right now. Yeah. But the next uh, the next methodology underneath agile is no methodology whatsoever. Huh. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. 
Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. It's nice to know at least we have one methodology that's more than none. Yeah. I was going to say about 23 to 27% of customers don't have a methodology. And I'd even go further than that and even say that for, the major- for a, a part of the customers that say that they're agile, they probably aren't. Because hmm. um, I've walked into a lot of organizations that go, hey, what, you know, what methodology do you guys use? Oh, we're agile. Oh, well, tell me about that. Um, you know, do you follow Scrum? No. Do you follow XP? No. Do you follow this? No. What's Scrum? I don't know. But we're agile. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't write docs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it really means. <laughs> we don't plan anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no. Don't quote us on that, kids. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I'm really excited at the idea that finally one of the methodologies has beaten out not having a methodology. <laughs> but you know what's really interesting about Scrum is that Scrum, and, and Ken Schwaber may not agree with me on this. Ken Schwaber is the founder uh, and inventor of Scrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scrum has this thing called a retrospective. And in a retrospective, you sit back and do the team and you guys, what do we do right? What do we do you know, not so right? And what could we do better? That's an opportunity to bring in new practices. Right. Interestingly enough, that opportunity brings in other practices from other methodologies. Mm. So we're seeing that flavors of um, TDD get adopted inside of Scrum projects. We're seeing that flavors of XP get adopted into Scrum projects because they have a few jewels in them mm. that Scrum doesn't care anything about, right? It doesn't prescribe daily builds. It doesn't just, you know, prescribe uh, doing spikes. Mm. But these are good things that those other methodologies provide us and teams will look to them and start now bringing in some of the great practices from all those other ones. The bigger problem there is, is that most teams do this by accident versus by on purpose. Um, when they sit down and they think about ways that they can do things better, they come to very similar conclusions to what these other methodologies already give them. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's refreshing to see people learning from their mistakes. Yeah, well, as opposed to what? <laughs> well, my, my grandfather always used to say to me, there's three types of people in the world. There's the stupid people who don't learn from their mistakes. There's smart people who learn from their mis- mistakes. And then there's wise people who learn from the mistakes of others. Yeah, that's Ooh. very, very well said. It's deep. It is deep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you have kids, you know, you remember when you were a kid and you thought, why should I listen to my parents? <laughs> now, what do they know about being yeah. a kid? <laughs> you know yeah yeah listen bad. i've been there don't do that trust me on this one there will be consequences yeah well and i think that that same mindset applies to you know to teams that are learning as well so you know i i've seen that same behavior over and over again well we can't do this because we're unique right yeah, we right. do things differently yeah, it doesn't apply to us we're it doesn't different. apply to us we're um, doing the kind of software development no one's ever done before. That's right. That's right. Really? Really? Yeah. yeah. But there are so many practices. That, and, and, you know, I, quite frankly, that's one of the reasons I've decided to focus on methodology and team dynamics and how those interact with tools versus becoming a build expert or a version control expert. As those things are really very interesting and passionate to me, I found that uh, over, the, you know, over my you know, 18 years of experience, I've seen teams fail and succeed using the exact same tools. So it's not really the tools that are helping mm. us. So what's, what's the dynamic? What makes the team succeed? Mm-hmm. What doesn't? And that's the stuff that really intrigues me 
and why methodologies and team dynamics play a huge role in that. Well, and some tools sort of assume methodologies, and some require certain pieces of Agile or or whatever methodology you have. And, um, y- you know, some tools are just not going to fit. And you're, and you're absolutely right. And we struggle with this. I mean, honestly, uh, from a Team Pulse perspective, uh, you know, we've been trying to develop a tool that acts like a, a, a place where you can go to gather requirements very expressively and plan out your, you know, your projects and capture ideas and goals and all that kind of stuff. But there's some underlying assumptions there right. that, that it would be beneficial for people to understand before using the tool. Now, this is, I'm a, a struggle for every tool vendor that's out there. Mm. So at what line do you say, guys, this is a Scrum tool versus, hey, this is a tool that you can use for Scrum? And I think that line is such a finely, a fine line. And when you have a tool that is a Scrum tool, there is basically a declaration of, hey, you should know Scrum, and we will do things Scrum-like versus, Mm. you know, the opposite, which is, oh, I could use it for Scrum, which means I can use it for anything else, which is a tough thing to manage. Yeah, so it's a good thing to know what these tools do and to know what they're requirements are, what their assumptions are, and, you know, with their strong points and weak well, I mean, points it's, are. It's like design patterns. So, you know, you guys are as passionate about writing code and design patterns as I am. And you don't, you don't just grab design patterns and throw them at problems right. or, you know, or pieces of code or code tools. You tend to kind of know how they apply. And most great teams have a sense of understanding what these technology pieces mean for you. Mm. We need to apply that same mindset to projects and team management and process management that there needs to be, uh, we can't just be the, the equivalent of writing code just off the top of my head anymore. There needs to be a purpose, a design, uh, a, a methodology behind our approach with managing projects in the same way that we actually uh, design and architect our software. And it's interesting how that's not always the case. In fact, it's all very much the opposite. Whereas we spend a lot of time thinking about engineering and not a lot of time thinking about team dynamics, project management, and, and delivery versus yeah. overthinking about it in the whole you know, PMO world and trying to you know, track every morsel of time you have in a day and compare that against your plan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely can overdo those things too. Uh, well, I'm, you know, one of the things that's interested me most about TFS, maybe it's just because I'm getting older and more involved in management, is being able to see what my developers are doing without interrupting them. Yeah. Like, it's interesting to me how useful check-in rate is at gauging developer thrash. You always bring this up, Richard, which is because you've been surprised many times with you think that the developer is working on a tough problem when, in fact, you know, he's leaning back in his chair or her chair, throwing pencils at the ceiling and just clueless. Right. And, and before tools, what, you know, we had, I don't know about you guys, but I had this, this saying, oh, they went dark, right? Something yeah. is bad because I'm not hearing anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it I can hear noises. keys on the t- keyboard just fine, but I'm still not hearing anything, right? And, and with tools, uh, if we can somehow instrument progress and, and make it seamless for us to understand flow and, and visualize it even better. So, you know, and that's one of the reasons we created the uh, Telerik dashboard a few years ago, is we throw this thing up on the wall. It instruments, it just watches TFS. 
and mm-hmm. it shows us the number of check-ins. It shows us the number of lines of code that have been checked in. It That's shows cool. us broken builds. It shows us who broke the build. It shows us code churn. It shows us bug uh, restore rates. And I don't have to ask my developers to report on it. Wow. It's real time. That's cool. Well, generally speaking, I found, well, I guess in a sense, this is one of the things that the scrum meeting was supposed to be for is to, at least within a day, I can catch somebody thrashing. Yeah, for sure. What'd you get done yesterday? I've been stuck on a problem. Great. I'll be over to help you with it. Yeah. uh, The fact that I could pick that up passively, I don't know that we've got tooling around this, but this idea that when this guy's productive, he checks in four times a day and he now hasn't checked in for two days. I'd like to, uh, rather than a dash, I don't know if the dashboard does this, Joel, but it'd be nice instead of having to watch it constantly, if you could have alerts, send me an alert when this number goes below a certain threshold or or when I have no activity from this person or whatever. Funny you say that. <laughs> and believe me, I haven't been paid to say this. I, I'm just talking off the top of my head here. So, so as we don't have this in the work item manager and dashboard from Telerik, we, you know, our new tool, our Team Pulse, is a tool that, again, can integrate with TFS, but is not re- it doesn't require TFS to work. But what we've built into it is a best practices engine. And actually what it does is it just smells out stuff that just smells funny. Like, wait a second oh. here. You know, you've got stories in your current iteration that don't have an estimate. Ah, I don't think that's right. Or, hey, you know, that story, uh, that user story, isn't decomposed into anything. Like, really? Is that going to work for you? Wow. And so this engine looks for these smell tests. And with our upcoming releases, we're going to be releasing five to ten best practices every release that looks for those things. You, you've, I nailed a few of them. But going, you know... That thing hasn't moved in a while. Yeah. Either developer forgot to move it or something smells bad. I just want to, you know, point you in that direction. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's built software with built-in smarts instead of relying on the user to do everything. Well, see, you know, a lot of the coaching that we end up doing is very logistical based. You know, here's an example. You know, as a coach, I'd go into a, a company and I'd look at what they're, you know, doing and I'd look at their data and their data tells me a lot about their practices. And, you know, one of the things that would really bug me is I would find, uh, you know, a requirement that's still in progress from four months ago. Mm. You know, it was, in, it was in a sprint four sprints ago. And I'm like, well, have you forgotten about it? Or is it really in progress? You know, you should move that forward. Mm. You know, there's a lot of things that you should do. So I took all of these things that I would look for. And I built them into a tool to have this kind of built-in consultant hmm. that would look for these logistical things that would take so much time out of my day, um, but yet are just common sense things that you want to look for, right? Interesting. Wow, that's, yeah, fab- to, that's fabulous. Well, and I, yeah, I guess the other layer on this is being able to actually look at what normal behavior is versus anomalous behavior. Like we, We're finally gathering all of these instrumentation points over projects ostensibly to get better and better at estimating what it's going to take to do a project. But how often do we actually compare data like that? Yeah. Well, and then there's also the interpretive aspect of it. So, you know, so many tools give you a chart. Look, boom, here's a chart. Bam. So what? How should I interpret this chart? How should I take what I'm looking at and turn it into action? That we get says, into what numbers are good and what numbers are bad. Well, it's not only that. You, you know, you, you, you can get some high-level guidance, like a burn-down chart should trend mm-hmm. downward, <laughs> right? But what if it's not quite trending downward? Or what if it doesn't intersect the x-axis before the end of the sprint? Or, 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 right? 
There's right. a number of things that you can interpret from this. And, and you know what? Maybe it's not the job of all teams to, to do this. Maybe it's the job of the software to interpret a lot of that stuff for you. That's kind of our, that's our goal and direction with so many of the metrics that we're going with. Let's forget about just the charts, for one. People like to see charts. They're great. But let's help you turn that into meaning and action. Sure. Actually do something with it all. Yeah. So, Bob, what's, what's, what are you doing next? Where can we see you in action? Well, that's a good question. So kind of looking into the future a little bit, I will be at the MVP Summit. I'm actually quite looking forward to that. I'm actually looking forward more to the fact that I'm not traveling. I've been just doing so much traveling um, in 2010, and I'm taking that's a few true. months off. Uh, so my next major trip will be in uh, uh, to the MVP Summit. It's just a refresher. You get to be with you know people who think just like you and are passionate about stuff that you're passionate about, and you get that interaction with the product group again. Um, after that, it looks like I'm going to may- be making a few dashes to Australia um, oh, yeah. to uh, help support the Agile Alum community with Telerik out there. Um, then uh, looks nice. like I'll be in India for the uh, Great Indian Developers Conference. I think it's what it's called. And uh, then after that, I have this little trip to Nepal with a few good friends. Who would go to Nepal? Who does that? That's just crazy talk. Don't know. You guys are nuts. <laughs> uh, all right, should I tell a story? Go ahead. Sure. So the only way it's totally Steve Forte driving this, right? The only way he was going to get me back to Nepal is if he came up with something really extraordinary. And the Sherpa he works with managed to get a permit for an area called the Kingdom of Lo. It's way down in the southeast corner of Nepal. It's right up against uh, Tibet. It, the very few permits issued each year, he's, you know, he's only been there a couple of times before. And that was the thing. It's like, if you don't do this, you will never get here. And near as I can tell, they stopped issuing building permits in that part of the world in like 1450. Yeah. I don't think it's so changed at all. since. It's just been frozen in time for 500 years. Wow. So that, that's sort of the attraction is, you know, we've, we've seen some of, of, I think what you're going to see is what, Tibet used to be like before the current situation with the Chinese, that this is the old Tibet, It's in, even though it's in Nepal. Well, it seems to me like we're going back in time. I mean, yeah. that's what kind of excites me is that there's no modern amenities what, whatsoever. And quite, quite likely, the views and the vistas and the way that the people live haven't changed at all since, you know, like, like, like you said, back in the, the 1400s. And yeah. it, just, it just fascinates me. So there'll be some stories when we get back. Hey, Joel, are you doing any music these days? I am. And no. you know what? I, uh, I just made, uh, I got myself uh, a new Christmas present. I got the iRig from Amplitude for my, for my iPad. Have you, have you seen it? I have seen it, yeah. It basically is a guitar processor that you plug an electric guitar into through the, uh, what is it, through the phone jack? Uh, yeah, so no, you, you, you basically do it through the... Um, through your uh, headphone jack, yeah, and right. it comes with a special device that you can actually plug your guitar right into it. Yeah. Now it's not heavy-duty professional sounding, but it really is convenient yeah. when you're you know traveling along and you just kind of want to put on some headphones and and you know and and you know play with different uh, combinations of pedals and different types of amps and stuff yeah, like it that. It does amplifier modeling and all the stuff that has been popular for the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, so for sure, I've been technology. really enjoying that. Very cool. Any cool. bass? Playing any bass? 
I am not playing any bass. No, I've uh, haven't played bass in a while. I've I got myself uh, um, a new guitar. Actually, my wife purchased it for me uh, last week. Uh, sorry, not last week. Last year, and uh, you know, it's it's something that I've been trying to play more and more. But I've been just finding with travel, mm. it's just so difficult. I know, Carl, you travel a lot with your yeah. your uh, your guitar, but I haven't really found the guts to do that yet. I bought uh, myself a GNL. Um, well, there's your problem. You don't travel with a GNL. <laughs> I, I bought a $300 Yamaha acoustic that I travel with, and I'm not really attached to it, so I could always get another one just like it, you know? Yeah, you know, I was actually thinking about um, one of my uh, uh, friends has one of those port, um, fold-up guitars. It's from Yamaha. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and he and he plays with it on the road, and it's kind of goofy looking, but at least you can kind of plug it into your, you know, to my new, um, uh, right. you know, iTunes processor yeah. and play along the road, and it kind of folds up into this little case. So I was thinking about going and grabbing one of those. Ken Allstad had one of those, and, and I got one, but my problem is I like to play for people. So yeah. you have to have an amplifier if you're going to play that for people. True enough. So yeah. that's my thing. But if you, yeah, if you're going to play with headphones, that's a great way to do it. Yep. Well, um, I, I guess that's bringing us about to the end of the show. Any anything uh, last minute you want to throw out there? I don't know about you guys, but I'm really enjoying the Connect. Isn't that awesome? Oh man, yeah, astonishing! And more and more coming out with it every day. Connecthacks.com. That's your friend. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just I'm just tickled at at that product and and what it's going to be doing to the industry. You know, we talked about Git being an influencer technology, yeah. and you know, there's no doubt in my mind that Connect is an influencer in a in a really good positive way. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I, I watched the CES keynote, and it clearly hinting that there'll be new devices and new techniques to use the Connect as part a Connect like device as part of your monitor, but it'll be a different kind of device. Yeah, P- putting one in every room in my house. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Big Brother is watching. Only one. I think it needs to be three to get a full 3D render. Watch out, kids. There you go. <laughs> Dad's gone crazy. All right, Joel. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot, guys. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.